3: Navy Federal Credit Union. Our members are the mission. Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
0: Prodigy is a production of iHeartRadio.
2: World records are humanity's scoreboard. They're broken every single day by people who push themselves further than any human being before them. Could I break a world record if I practiced enough? The most push-ups I've ever done is 60. The world record is 10,507. In grade school, I memorized 30 digits of pi. The record is over 67,000. Can anyone achieve anything if you try hard enough? My name is Lowell Brillanti, and this is Prodigy. Dr. Anders Eriksson spent his entire adult life studying elite performance. He's referred to as the expert on experts. Anders or Anders?
4: The way it's pronounced in Sweden is Anders. But, you know, unless you're born in Sweden, that's hard. So pretty much anything is fine.
2: Erickson's name might not be familiar to you, but his research probably is. It's been cited over 11,000 times. I learned about him from the book Outliers by Malcolm Gladwell.
4: And I guess one of the questions that we were interested in was the role of practice in sort of determining who would be very successful as a violinist.
2: Gladwell wrote that 10,000 is the magic number of hours it takes to master something. He came to this number from Erickson's study of classical musicians in 1993, which showed a direct correlation between the amount of practice and achievement.
4: And we found that sort of the most successful violinists actually had practiced more during their development than those in the same program who were not as successful basically uh, in the uh, music competitions.
2: Erickson's abstract said, many characteristics, once believed to reflect innate talent, are actually the result of intense practice extended for a minimum of 10 years.
4: Basically, finding now uh, an interesting rank ordering here of the amount of practice you had engaged in and basically your success as uh, sort of an adult.
2: There has been some controversy about what Erickson called deliberate practice, and we'll get into that soon. But let's start at the beginning. 60 years ago, a Harvard psychologist published what became one of the most cited papers in psychology. It was about cognitive limitation, specifically related to memory span. Memory span is the max amount of items, like digits in a phone number, that one can repeat back immediately. You might know it as short-term memory. The items were read out loud to a subject at the speed of one per second. The list had to be recalled in the correct order and accomplished at least 50% of the time. The study showed that the average memory span for adults is seven items. I tested this on myself, and I can usually recall seven digits, but not eight. If you want to test your memory span, visit prodigypodcast.com slash memory. Here's a list of seven digits. Seven, zero, four, one, nine, eight, five. It's difficult to hold those individual numbers in your working memory, but it's much easier if you use a mechanism called chunking. Chunking is the process of breaking down a data set and grouping the pieces together into meaningful chunks. For the seven digits I just read, I would group them into two chunks, 704 and 1985. Those chunks make sense to me because it's my hometown area code and the year I was born. As you can probably guess, chunks are based on an individual's perception and past experiences. A different person might chunk them as 70, 419, and 85. Here's Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman.
3: Chunking is a term in in the expertise literature where once you get lots of complex information and you start looking at them as little smaller patterns, you can really quite quickly appear quick and smart and talented in very specific forms of expertise.
2: So Seven Items was understood to be the average memory span. More than 30 years later, a young postdoctoral researcher by the name of Dr. Carl Anders Ericsson developed a study to determine if memory span could be improved. Their subject's name was Steve Falloon, who was a cross-country runner at Carnegie Mellon University. Ericsson would read him random digits at a rate of one per second which is too fast to store in long-term memory. If Steve recalled them correctly, then Erickson would add a digit. If he made an error, then Erickson would subtract one.
4: He initially did what a lot of people would do with phone numbers. You know, you would just kind of repeat them in your head, maybe grouping them, but basically that's all you were doing. And he just found that when he did that, he pretty much plateaued.
2: After several sessions, Steve didn't improve and became discouraged. But then, there was a breakthrough.
4: And then he realized that if he concentrated on the first three digits and thought of them as a running time, he was basically a cross-country runner, he could actually think of those numbers in a meaningful way. And then, once he got further into the sequence, he could then maybe even do another group of three and interpret that with some meaningful associations.
2: That session... Steve was able to recall 11 digits for the first time. But it didn't stop there.
4: What he did was to build like a hierarchy where he kind of had running times at different places in the space, uh, typically as three of them organized hierarchically.
2: Steve was learning to chunk chunks. Three weeks later, he was able to recall 20 digits. After 100 hours of training, he was able to recall 40 which at the time was the most ever. And by the end of the study, he could recall a random string of 82 digits. These were groundbreaking results. Now Erickson needed to repeat it. He began again with a second subject, but she ended up quitting.
4: She did something quite different. So she actually tried to identify numbers and then make like a little meaningful story about the numbers. Oh, six, that would be a six-year-old. So she kind of would generate these little stories or or scenarios. We argue that that type of strategy is just not uh, useful or possible to keep improving. She was able to do, I guess, at least 20 digits, so it's pretty impressive nonetheless.
2: Steve recruited his teammate, Dario Donatelli, and taught him his method. Dario spent over five years in the study and at his peak, was able to recall an incredible 113 digits. Practice is about building mental representations that form the connections in or between chunks. In the book Peak, Erickson defines mental representations as a structure that corresponds to an object, idea, or collection of information. Grandmaster chess players can memorize the positions of every piece in a game with just a quick glance. They can even play a game without ever looking at the board. And not just one. Some can play multiple games at the same time without seeing the board. The current record for simultaneous games played blindfolded is 48, with 35 wins, seven draws, and six losses. 48 games of chess? I can't even remember eight numbers. Everyone assumed these grandmasters had photographic memories, until a study was done where researchers showed them a chessboard where the pieces were arranged in a way that couldn't naturally occur in a game of chess. Now the grandmasters barely outperformed the average person. Through thousands of hours of practice, grandmaster chess players build up mental representations for the arrangement of pieces on the board. I wanted to know what is physically happening when we code these patterns into our long-term memory.
4: Our body, including our nervous system, is engineered to kind of respond to challenges. For example, if we take something like long distance running, the first two or three weeks when you actually are starting now to run, the neurons in your legs are actually coordinating their activity. If you actually go beyond three weeks, you can actually see that capillaries are growing because you now have such an effective way of using up muscular energy, you now have a depletion of oxygen and other things. And that depleted state will now stimulate the growth of capillaries. And with even more training, you will actually increase the heart so it will actually be able to pump more blood and also your arteries will be growing. And what's interesting is that if you, for some reason, stop training, most of these changes will actually go back towards the normal state that you started out before training.
2: Most people have experienced these types of physical effects on their body. But what about an area that's harder to recognize, like the brain?
4: There's numerous different ways in which the brain can actually change. and One of the most noted ones is that you can kind of grow myelin around certain nerve fibers, and that actually allows you now to speed up processing by an order of magnitude. There's also, you can grow synapses. You know, the brain is such incredibly complex that people are still working on trying to come up with ways of measuring and quantifying. I mean, we're talking about trillion different
2: nerve cells. The brain is wired with nerve cell axons. Myelin insulates the wires and helps increase the rate at which electrical impulses are transmitted. One of the books based on Erickson's research is The Talent Code by Daniel Coyle. In a TED Talk, Coyle actually called the idea of people being born with talent the greatest story ever told. And he called it that because it had magic babies in it. It's
5: the greatest story ever because it has magical babies in it. (laughs) Is there a better story anywhere?
2: Coyle, quite literally, referred to genetic predisposition as magic. He wrote on his website his opinion of genes. Quote, They matter, but not nearly as much as we think. Scientists have sequenced the human genome, but they can't locate the genes for musical talent, or math, or art, or sports. Mostly because genes don't work that way. And here is what Dan Coyle believes is the science behind skill acquisition. Quote, To put it in construction terms, genes are the blueprint for our bodies, but the skill circuits that allow those bodies to perform complex skills are built through deep practice. Coyle suggests that what he calls deep practice causes new nerve cells to fire, which increases myelin and establishes a strong skill circuit. I asked Dr. Brooke McNamara, what is happening in the brain when we learn She's a professor at Case Western Reserve University, where she investigates complex human performance. She got her PhD from Princeton on the subject, so I figured she might be a better source than journalist Dan Coyle.
6: That is a great question. That is something that we're still figuring out. Really, it's a bit more on the theory side at this point. There's some theories that say that a new neural trace is put down whenever you experience a new stimuli. And then when you experience that same stimuli again, you either sort of try to figure it out how you did the first time, or you go back to that neural trace and either some theories say the neural trace is strengthened, there's other theories that say a new neural trace is laid down, and eventually, based on the strength of the neural traces or the strength of multiple neural traces, you begin to recognize that stimuli. You don't have to try to figure it out. You go, oh, right, I remember that and I know the response to it. So you start recalling it directly from memory. But even that depends on the stimuli. So those types of theories seem to hold for verbal tasks and mathematical tasks but they don't seem to hold for dynamic spatial tasks like returning a serve in tennis. And so we don't actually even know exactly what's going on with the brain there. So there's there's lots of both neuroscience, cognitive neuroscience and cognitive psychology left on the table for people to discover more about how the brain works.
2: The brain is incredibly complex and difficult to study. We do have some methods, but they're relatively rudimentary. Here is psychiatrist and nuclear medicine specialist, Dr. Rob Tarswell. He uses radioactive tracers to study activity in the brain.
5: It's just something that with our current state of science and technology is pretty difficult to see, right? So the kind of imaging I'm working at is at about a 4 to 6 millimeter scale. Within a 4 to 6 millimeter cube, there's about 80 to 100 million neurons. So in a sense... We're trying to figure out whether Joe Biden or Donald Trump is going to win the election by watching voters in lines from satellites in orbit. It tells you something, but it's not drilling down fine enough to give you the kind of information you really need.
2: For some reason, Dr. McNamara and Dr. Tarswell didn't know that Coyle had all this figured out 11 years ago when his book was published. I didn't have the heart to tell them. But joking aside, Dan Coyle is an environmentalist who clumsily rebranded Erickson's theory of deliberate practice to sell books. Alright, we're going to dive into deliberate practice and the 10,000 hour rule right after this quick break.
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox. But a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
5: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
2: Welcome back to Prodigy. You can find source material and test your memory spam at prodigypodcast.com. All right, back to the show. So now that we've covered how practice improves ability, let's look at Erickson's research, which altered the perception of expert performance. In his 1993 paper, Erickson denied that innate talent determined the level of one's performance. I'm going to paraphrase a quote from the paper that described the belief. We agree that expert performers have abilities outside the range of normal adults. However, we deny that these differences are due to genetic talent. Only a few exceptions, like height, are genetically prescribed. We argue that the difference between expert and normal performers is a lifelong period of deliberate effort to improve in a domain. Erickson's data showed that the only determining factor of expert performance is the amount of time spent practicing, but not just any type of practice, a specific type, he referred to as deliberate practice. In Malcolm Gladwell's best-selling book titled, Outliers, The Story of Success, he defines practice as, purposefully and single-mindedly playing their instruments to get better. Gladwell then describes the Beatles playing hundreds of shows in Hamburg as a reason why they became so good. But this example doesn't fit the definition of deliberate practice. Erickson describes three types of activities, work, play, and deliberate practice. Work includes public performances and other activities motivated by external rewards. Play has no explicit goal and is enjoyable. Deliberate practice is activities specifically designed to improve performance. So according to Erickson, Gladwell's example of the Beatles be defined as work. The reason that Erickson made the distinction is because during a show, your focus is on performing at your highest level, while deliberate practice is focused on increasing your highest level.
4: If you want to dunk a basketball, I think most people would think, well, you know, I'm just going to keep trying to get a higher jump. It's well known now that there are other ways in which you can actually improve your jumping ability. So much more than actually just trying to dunk. So for example, one thing is weightlifting. So if you basically look at the stimulation of your legs when you're actually lifting a weight, that is so much more intense than the stimulation that you get from actually trying to jump towards the hoop and you know, reach a higher level. Another thing that's been demonstrated to also be far superior to just doing the thing, is jumping from a height. So if you're basically standing on a table and then you jump down, the stimulation that you get on your legs when they have to absorb your body weight is actually much more intense and therefore will lead to the development uh, and the strengthening of your legs in a much more effective way than trying to jump up towards the hoop.
2: He also said, That it should include a coach to provide feedback and design the training. Whether or not it must include a coach wasn't clear, which brings me to Dr. Hambrick. Here's a clip from one of his lectures
0: Anders Ericsson has argued that expert performance largely, uh, if not entirely, reflects a long period of engaging in what he calls deliberate practice.
2: In 2013, researchers Hambrick, McNamara, and Oswald published a meta-analysis of deliberate practice. A meta-analysis examines multiple scientific studies that address the same question. In this case, how effective is deliberate practice? Since they include more data than a single study, they're expected to be more accurate.
6: So meta-analysis takes all relevant studies or data sets and synthesizes across them looking for patterns.
2: That's Dr. Brooke McNamara again. She works with Dr. Hambrick a lot.
6: With any one study, you could find any effect. I might find something, but unless I replicate it, I can't be too confident in that result. It's interesting and I'll probably put it forth, but until I get some confirmation of that, I don't know if it just happened to be those 100 people that I sampled that seemed to give that effect. So either through replication, especially if you have multiple replications, Or if you have a meta analysis. So instead of that one study that gives me this one result, if I have 20 studies, then I can see, well, how many of these 20
2: studies give me the same result? They agreed that practice is critical and accurately predicts how much an individual person improves.
7: We were in complete agreement on the importance of training. I mean, we aren't literally born as experts, you have to acquire skill and knowledge.
2: They determined that deliberate practice is not as important as Erickson claimed. They weren't saying that deliberate practice doesn't matter. It's necessary for improving your skill. However, they found that it wasn't a major factor in explaining the skill differences between people. So the more you practice, the better you'll be. But that doesn't guarantee you'll be better than someone else who has practiced less. Here's another clip from Hamburg's lecture.
0: There's no reason to think that a healthy person will not benefit from deliberate practice but people vary widely in the amount of deliberate practice it takes them to reach a given level of skill. This is a study done in Buenos Aires by my colleague Guillermo Campatelli. He recruited 90 chess players from the Buenos Aires Chess Club, and the finding was that, number one, practice and chess rating correlated, 0.42, that's not trivial, nothing to sneeze at, But there was still a massive amount of variability in the amount of deliberate practice it took the players to reach a given level of skill, master status. We see a large amount of variability within skill level. Uh, Some never reach master level despite over 25,000 hours of deliberate practice. This is like me trying to get to a scratch handicap in golf.
2: The results of the meta-analysis showed that deliberate practice contributed to a 14% difference in performance. This differed by domain, though. So deliberate practice contributed to 26% difference in games, but just 1% for professions. Erickson said that performance was 100% related to the amount of deliberate practice spent. What was the cause for such a wide discrepancy in findings?
4: Their definition of basically the studies of practice that they included really failed to meet those standards that we were pointing out of actually having Training activities where you get immediate feedback so you can actually monitor how you get better. So, for example, they included one estimate of having adolescents watch sports on television. I think that's fundamentally different.
2: So Erickson said they didn't use the correct criteria for choosing studies. Let's look at the description in the meta-analysis. They define it as, quote, engagement in structured activities created specifically to improve performance in a domain.
4: So those activities are very different from the way we define deliberate practice. There's not a teacher who is actually assessing a given individual and then posing here appropriate training activities that would allow that individual to improve from their current performance. And they included times like, for example, scrimmaging where, you know, you just had the team split up into two groups and then playing against each other. again. That's very, very far from the criteria that we
2: established. So the meta-analysis included studies that didn't meet Erickson's definition of deliberate practice. I asked Dr. Hambrick what criteria they used.
7: There were a number of criteria, but the main one was that the studies reported a measure of performance in a domain and a measure interpretable as deliberate practice. And what is deliberate practice? Well, this was at least to us, it was unclear in terms of specifics. One thing that a consistent point that Erickson and his colleagues made all, all along was that it's an activity that's been designed to elevate performance. There were elements of a definition where we saw inconsistencies in um, his writings. For example, whether or not a coach or a teacher is required, whether it can be group or whether it can be individual. And so we cast a wide net and used a broad definition of deliberate practice. That was one of the reasons that we, you know, made all our our data uh, available so that people could reanalyze our data using their own definition or what they believed to be the correct definition.
2: Erickson took that available data and reanalyzed it according to his definition of deliberate practice. And when we
4: selected now these studies that met these criteria, we found substantially higher estimates than they did.
2: Why would an intelligent person like Hambrick misinterpret the definition?
4: At the beginning, and then pretty
7: recently, he and his colleagues did emphasize the importance of having a coach. At other times, said that deliberate practice could be designed by the performers themselves.
2: Hambrick and colleagues released an article in August explaining the source of the confusion. Quote, Erickson and colleagues have been inconsistent on critical elements of the definition of deliberate practice, and consequently, it has been unclear what activities do and do not qualify as deliberate practice. Hambrick then provides a timeline over the course of 27 years where Erickson is given three different definitions of deliberate practice regarding who designs the training program. One, the teacher alone. Two, typically the teacher and three, the teacher or performers themselves. Hambrick's issue is not with the evolution of the definition. He states that revising a theory as new evidence is accumulated is not only normal, it's expected, but the revisions must be explained so they can be evaluated. If the revisions are not transparent, then they can be altered in order to stay relevant. This is what's referred to as post hoc interpretation of data. Sadly, we'll hear no response. The day after our interview, Dr. Carl Anders Ericsson passed from heart complications.
7: It is really difficult to overstate the influence that he had on the field of expertise. I mean, his ideas and his perspective shaped the trajectory of of research on expertise for decades and it inspired a whole generation of researchers.
2: Erickson helped define the optimal way to improve skills. His research was so groundbreaking that it transformed our understanding of potential. Transformation of a field is the metric that psychologists use to define a genius. Anders was a genius and a genuinely good person.
4: I love people to raise difficult questions because I think that's a little bit the way I view purposeful practice for a scientist is The more that you can find the best, most challenging questions, that allows you to get a head start thinking about things, and hopefully being able to understand them better.
7: He was such an engaging person to be around. I remember going in the first time in the honors office, and it was just filled with papers and books, as if they had been just kind of shoveled in there. (laughs) He uh, was just really warm and friendly, and Of course, as you may know, I did work critiquing his perspective, but that's what academics do. But I have very fond memories of him. He had a great sense of humor and was a voracious reader. He would go to conferences and he would take a trunk. He would fill the trunk full of books and ship it back to his home and speaking of his home he had a library in his home a full-on library with stacks like rows and it was it was pretty cool cool to see that
2: it was really obvious how much Hamburg respected erickson and valued his contribution to the field
7: i've been critical of it this is what happens in a scholarly area but He forced me to think carefully about my perspective and to try to put my best case forward. His influence has been on the field, has been profound, and he certainly had a huge influence on my own work. I've spent a lot of time, you know, thinking about his work and critically examining it and assumptions about the origins of expertise. And it's, uh, I have to say, it's just, it's really weird to think about him no longer being around. Uh, but his ideas, of course, will, will live on and they'll continue to inspire debate and, and scholarship and move us ever closer towards a, a full understanding of, of expertise and expert performance.
2: In 2010, a study was published proving the existence of extrasensory perception, also known as ESP. We'll explore that
3: Savings products insured by NCUA. Investment products are not insured. Not obligations of Navy Federal and may lose value.
1: Are you tired of your scented cleaning products smelling and cleaning like meh? Then it's time for an upgrade with the power of Clorox Sentiva. With an uplifting scent that smells like coconut, Clorox Sentiva gives you powerful clean like Clorox. But a feeling like being transported to a tropical island retreat. Imagine putting your phone on Do Not Disturb. Tuning out all the constant, just the feeling of warm sand in between your toes and a fruity drink in your hand. The ones with the little umbrella. Refresh your home to feel like an all-inclusive vacation by getting Clorox Sentiva, Also available in grapefruit and lavender scents at a nearby retail store.
5: Snag a job is where America goes to hire with the deepest talent pool in hourly hiring.
2: Welcome back to Prodigy. Pam Peacock is the talented designer of our cover art. You can see more of her work on Instagram, at the Voyager Peacock. All right, back to the show. The issue with the definition of deliberate practice is fairly common. Social sciences have been suffering from something known as the replication crisis. Researchers found that many studies are difficult or impossible to reproduce. Here's Dr. McNamara.
6: It began with a study on ESP that got published, and this outraged a number of psychologists, thinking, what, what have we come to when we know that this can't exist?
2: In 2011, Daryl Bem published the results of a 10-year study on extrasensory perception. The data seemingly showed that time flowed in two directions, allowing people insight into the future. Bem's research appeared to be done correctly, his peers knew that ESP couldn't exist.
6: Or if it could, then that the evidence should be really strong. And, and you read this paper and you realize that, that it's not and that there's problems with it and that surely if any other psychologist tried to conduct this experiment, they would not find significant effects. So this led people to start really thinking about replication and how many of the effects that we see in the published literature maybe aren't real.
2: So how can we avoid confusion like this moving forward?
6: We want to see larger samples. We want to see rigorous methods. Something else that has really changed the landscape quite a bit is pre-registrations.
2: Pre-registration is submitting a document explaining what research they plan to do and how.
6: So we know from medicine that things changed a lot in the year 2000. This is when It became required for any clinical trial to be pre-registered. And all of the sudden, from that date forward, there were way fewer successful attempts at a new drug or a new clinical trial. So, you know, would I want to be treated by a doctor using a study before 2000 or after 2000? The answer is probably after 2000. How it used to be was that if there was no pre-registered plan, people would treat the data however could get them in effect. But now, if it's documented how you're going to do it, then you can actually confirm hypotheses as opposed to just trying to find something from the data.
2: If deliberate practice is not the primary predictor of expert performance, then what is? Hambrick and McNamara propose something called the multifactorial model.
6: We can't rely on the single-cause fallacy that practice, however it's defined, can't fully account for individual differences in performance. In fact, it doesn't even account for the majority of it.
2: The single-cause fallacy occurs when it is assumed that there is a single, simple explanation for an outcome, when in reality, it's a combination of factors.
6: There really needs to be a broader picture taking into account multiple factors to begin to explain human performance in a real way.
2: One question I've really been wanting the answer to is, where does the motivation to spend thousands of hours on a single domain, come from.
0: Heritability of lifetime hours of music practice was on average about 50%. Now, in the expertise literature, this is kind of a a head-scratcher because, wait, you know, how could could practice be heritable, right? That doesn't compute. It's a purely environmental variable. But this is readily explained in terms of the concept of gene-environment
2: correlation. This gene-environment correlation is extremely interesting. Next episode, we're going to dig into the details of that and a whole lot more. I have so many questions to answer and a ton of really interesting topics to cover. Thank you so much for listening, and please subscribe to the show, because I'll be back next week with another episode of Prodigy. Prodigy was created and produced by me, Lowell Berlanti. I'm very fortunate to have the brilliant former magic baby, Tyler Klang as my executive producer. If you wanna measure the quantity of your myelin, then take the memory test at ProdigyPodcast.com. Dr. Andres Ericsson was the expert on experts and will be sorely missed. Dr. David Hambrick runs the expertise lab at Michigan State, which focuses on the origins of skill. You can find more information at scienceofexpertise.com. Dr. Brooke McNamara is a professor at Case Western Reserve University where she investigates complex human performance. Follow her on Twitter at Brooke McNamara. Dr. Scott Barry Kaufman is host of the Psychology Podcast and has a new book out. Visit scottbarrykaufman.com for details. Dr. Rob Tarswell is a nuclear medicine scientist and psychiatrist. Subscribe to his YouTube channel. It's called One Minute Med School. If you like the artwork, check out Pam Peacock on Instagram at the Voyager Peacock. Very special thanks to Camille Dizon, Ben Kiebrick, Tristan McNeil, Terry Meyer, Alison Cantor, and Alex Cardinale. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.